recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 5th, 2013. Here we will continue with our presentation of the Book of Acts with Chapter 8. I have some preliminary remarks concerning Chapter 7 before we begin. In Acts Chapter 7, we saw Stephen make an appeal to his fellow countrymen in defense of the new Christian creed. His appeal was based on the life of Moses, primarily, who was at this time, presumably, next to Yahweh God himself, the most venerated figure in the history of Israel. Stephen's appeal included a description which explains the reason why Moses was chosen for the mission which God provided him. Because he displayed a greater care for the people of his own race than he did for his high station in life, which was provided by the Egyptians. In fact, Moses' care for his own race exceeded any care that they may have had for themselves. Saying these things, Stephen explains that Moses risked his own station and his worldly comforts for his brethren, even in spite of his brethren. And that for this reason, it was by Moses that Yahweh God chose to have Israel delivered from Egypt. Stephen described how this Moses spoke of a prophet to come, which is Yahshua Christ. Note that the final commandment given by Christ to his students was to love their brethren. But Stephen also explained how the people rejected Moses in spite of their delivery from Egypt, and how even the success which Israel had from Joshua to David and the building of the first temple in Jerusalem was tainted by their apostasy, for Yahweh had already given them up to worshiping the host of heaven. The overall point that Stephen was making is that the substance of God's people Israel should be revered and not the form. The temple, its adornments, the rituals and traditions connected to it, its manner of governance, those things are the form. The people of the nation, one's kindred, and seeking to follow the will of one's God, these things are the substance. Imagining that salvation may be obtained through the fulfilling of ordinances and rituals leads only to self-justification, the lesson of the Old Testament. The love of one's kindred leads to the edification of the kingdom of God and to the love of God, provided one abides in that love for his brethren. The traditionalists of Stephen's time rejected him, hated his message, and killed him for it. There are many times in history when men have done such a thing. Most recently in our own history, there's the War of Southern Independence, or perhaps it may be called the War of Northern Aggression. In America, before that time, men understood that their allegiance should be to God. From that time, men have sworn allegiance to a flag. The war was supposedly fought for preservation of the Union, but the Union is only the form of the nation 
And the substance is of far greater importance and far greater value. The founders understood the importance of the substance over the form and therefore left a union which was to be exclusively for them and their posterity. In only four generations, that specification seems to have been forgotten. So over a half million men were slain by their own brethren, and the substance was destroyed for the sake of the form. Today we continue to suffer the dreadful circumstances, and ever since that time, we have been enslaved by the masters behind the form. A state may be considered, and this is a quote, a state may be considered as a model example if it adequately serves not only the vital needs of the racial stock it represents, but if it actually assures by its own existence the preservation of the same racial stock, no matter what general cultural significance this state institution may have in the eyes of the rest of the world. For it is not the task of the state to create human capabilities, but only to assure free scope for the exercise of capabilities that already exist. On the other hand, a state may be called bad if in spite of the existence of a high cultural level, it dooms to destruction the bearers of that culture by breaking up their racial uniformity. For the practical effect of such a policy would be to destroy those conditions that are indispensable for the ulterior existence of that culture, which the state did not create, but which is the fruit of the creative power inherent in the racial stock whose existence is assured by being united in the living organism of the state. Once again, let me emphasize the fact that the state itself is not the substance, but the form. The words belong to Adolf Hitler. Mein Kampf, Book 2, Chapter 2. In Judea, in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ, the national form became more important than the substance of the nation. And people from all of the surrounding nations, those same Canaanites and Elamites who are accursed by God and who were rejected in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were folded into the citizenry of Jerusalem. And as the historian Josephus said, they were hereafter considered nothing but Judeans. Antiquities, book 13, chapter 9. These Judeans had somehow acquired the idea that all men, regardless of actual genealogical descent, could be justified in the rituals of the temple by circumcision and by sacrifice. The patriarchy became ethereal according to man, and it was no longer natural according to God. As soon as the substance of the nation was polluted in racial diversity, only the form mattered. So the substance was no longer of any consequence because any substance could then be employed in order to fill the form. 
by the time of Christ. These sentiments of form over substance must have deeply embedded themselves into the national psyche, for they were manifested in aspects of life, such as education and public policy, and the clash between what became known as Christianity and what is now known as Judaism. That was the result. Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Christ came for the substance of the nation and in, in that pursuit, his care for that substance, he had no regard for the form, which according to his own word was to be destroyed soon after. And indeed it was. 70 A.D. A people which fails to preserve, and this is another quote, the purity of its racial blood. Thereby destroys the unity of the soul of the nation in all its manifestations. A disintegrated national character is the inevitable consequence of a process of disintegration in the blood, and the change which takes place in the spiritual and creative faculties of the people is only an effect of the change that has modified its racial substance. Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf, Book 1, Chapter 12. Without a doubt, we have witnessed the truth of these words in our daily lives ever since they were written. And today, it is evidenced more than ever for all Christendom lies in decadence. With us, it is only the blood that should matter. Because and not in spite of the promise that in Yahweh shall all the seed, all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. The promise to save the seed has nothing to do with the form, and therefore to us, only the substance should matter. This is the problem throughout history with traditionalists and conservatives, even today, especially today. They are focused on preserving the form of their being, and they disregard the substance. Yesterday was the 4th of July. I don't know how any American can be patriotic. The nation's overrun with aliens. You can't be patriotic with anybody unless you have a common patriarch. The worship of the form of the nation is what happens every July 4th because the substance has long been forgotten about. If you're a white American, if you're of the posterity of the founders, it's an accident. Killing Stephen and persecuting Christians, the traditionalists in Judea sought to defend the form of the nation at the expense of the substance. The same thing 
can be said of the so-called civil war in America. Likewise, Adolf Hitler's Germany was destroyed because the Edomite Jew had convinced the nations of the West that the form of their own existence was threatened, something which was untrue and which was sheer propaganda on the part of the Jew. If we were all speaking German and did not slaughter our Germanic brethren, then we would be far more blessed than we are today. Instead, because we did such things, today we are enslaved by that same Jew. Just like in first century Judea, the people were basically enslaved by the house high priesthood. And because racial diversity can only be maintained through tyranny, we see tyranny develop wherever there is racial diversity. It is not much more than a Canaanite Jew merchant's bait-and-switch tactic to coax a people into worshiping the form of a nation over its substance. The World War I Hollywood propaganda, Irving Berlin and other Jews like him, that's the perfect example of this, worshiping the form of a nation over its substance. The same serpents are behind it every time it happens. With this, we will commence with Acts. Chapter 8. Verse 1. And Solace was consenting to his death, meaning the death of Stephen. As we close last week, it will once again be noted here that this opening phrase belongs to the end of chapter 7. Here we see that Paul did not take an active role in the killing of Stephen. Much later, however, Paul assumed responsibility for his murder because he consented to it. This is the same basis upon which Peter and Stephen also had blamed the entire nation of Judea for the crucifixion of Christ, although only a small number of the leaders of Judea actually had an active part in his murder. To continue with verse 1, And there came in that day a great persecution upon the assembly in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the lands of Judea and Samaria, except the ambassadors, or the apostles. The Codex Beze inserts at the end of this verse, after the word apostles, who remained in Jerusalem. Note that all of the apostles are together in one place even after this time. This aspect of the early days of Christianity is important and evaluating the words of Peter in Acts chapter 15, verse 7, because the apostles all knew what, the, what one another was doing until this time. This is important in evaluating the words of Peter in relation to Philip's preaching in Samaria and his conversion of the so-called Ethiopian eunuch, which is described here later in Acts chapter 8. Verse 2. And pious men retrieved Stephen and held a great mourning for him. 
just a few translation notes. The word rendered mourning is really lamentation. The Greek word for retrieved in the appropriate tense and in reference to Stephen's corpse is subkomizo, a word which appears only here in the New Testament. It's literally to carry or bring together, to gather, to collect, or figuratively to help in burying. Verse 3. Then Saulus outraged the assembly, entering into each of the houses, dragging away men and women. He delivered them into the prison. We have already seen in Acts chapters 4 and 5 that the high priests were exercising the authority to arrest Judean citizens who were seen as heretics, or at least who were seen as heretics other than those sects which were already deemed acceptable to the temple authorities. That Greek word from which we derive the English word heresy literally means a sect. Heretics are literally, and perhaps euphemistically in English, sectarians. Judea, as described by Josephus, had already three main religious sects, and they've been around for at least 200 years, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes none of which there is any record that they had ever been persecuted. Therefore, the real crime of these Christians seems not to have been heresy, since there were already these several sects in Judea which were not persecuted, and it's hypocritical at that point to persecute any sect. The real crime seems to be that Christianity was a heresy which undermined the established order of authority based upon the image and reputation of the temple, even if their heresy was not based upon violence or disorder or any overt action against the temple authority, it undermined that authority, while the other sects, basically Democrats and Republicans, worked to keep each other in power, to keep the club going. Pharisees and Sadducees, that's what they did. That's why they didn't persecute each other. Christianity was a threat. Verse 4, it was a threat to their presumed authority. It was a threat to the good old boys' network of Judea. So then those who were scattered went through, or not so literally went about, announcing the good message of the word. This last phrase may have been rendered more simply announcing the word. The Greek word, euagolizo, from whence is our English word evangelize and related terms, is fully to bring or to announce or to proclaim good news, to be a bringer of good news. This good news was meant for Israel, of course, as foretold by the prophets, by evangelizing those who were not of Israel. Unwittingly, the universalists bring those people bad news. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 5, And Philip, having descended into the city of Samaria, proclaimed the Christ to them. The words are translated quite literally, that Philip descended from Jerusalem into Samaria. Ancient Greeks descended or ascended to and from the sea coasts or to and from a city of high elevation, such as Jerusalem. You would go up 
from Galilee to Jerusalem, even if you were going south. The codices, Ephraim, Siri, Beze, and the majority text have a city and not the city. The codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus, the older and more reliable manuscripts, are the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. They have the city, as if it were a particular city. Many of the people of Samaria were actually of Israel. And they had, at least in many respects, returned to and kept the Hebrew traditions of their fathers. They were people of the ten northern tribes who had escaped the Assyrian captivities. Yes, there were other Adamic people moved into that land by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, who were not of Israel. They were still Adamic people. They were taken from other Adamic lands in Mesopotamia, and its environs, and moved into Samaria. Many of them were also permitted departure in the Persian period, just as the Judeans were permitted departure from Babylon back to their own home in Jerusalem. Many of the people of Samaria were actually of Israel. And they had, at least in many respects, returned to and kept the Hebrew traditions. They were people of the ten northern tribes who escaped the Syrian captivities. Nevertheless, they were despised by the Judeans because their genealogical records were destroyed in the Assyrian destruction of the cities of ancient Israel. The Samaritan woman at the well is clearly one of these. Christ certainly also had one of these in mind and no racial alien when he uttered the parable of the Good Samaritan recorded in Luke chapter 10. Here we will offer John chapter 4, not the entire chapter, but just about. And it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. So he comes to a city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the land which Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And there was a well of Jacob's there. Then Joshua, being tired from the journey, sat thusly by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon, roughly. A woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Joshua says to her, give me the drink. For his students had gone off to the city that they may buy food. Then the Samaritan woman says to him, you, being a Judean, How do you request from me, being a Samaritan woman, to drink? For the Judeans have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that's evident in the pages of Josephus. Because of the lack of relations between Judeans and Samaritans, the woman was surprised that that Yahshua even acknowledged her. Yahshua replied and said to her, If you knew the gift of Yahweh, And who it is saying to you, give me the drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given to you living water. The woman says to him, Master, you do not even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So from where do you have living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and had drank from it himself with his sons and his cattle? And Yahshua never denied her claim. 
that she was of the house of Jacob, and therefore it must have been true. This is evidenced where he continues to preach the gospel to her, even spending several days with her and her people. Verse 13, Yahshua responded and said to her, Each who is drinking from this water shall thirst again. But he who should drink from the water which I shall give to him shall not thirst for eternity. But the water which I shall give to him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman says to him, Master, give this water to me, that I shall not thirst nor pass by here to draw. He says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman replied and said to him, I do not have a husband. Yahshua says to her, You have spoken well that I do not have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and now he whom you have is not your husband. By this you spoke the truth. Now, of course, if Christ could tell this of the woman, he would have told that she was not an Israelite, right? The woman says to him, Master, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain. Mount Gerizim would be the mountain where there was a temple built by the Samaritans. The Samaritans built a temple. Well, Josephus gives the politically correct Judean reason. The Samaritans, if you wanted to take their side of the argument and examine it, may well have built the temple because the Judeans wouldn't let them into their temple and because the Samaritans wanted to return to the worship of Yahweh, their God. That would be a very plausible reason. They did build a temple on Mount Gerizim for any reason. It did exist. It existed for a long time. It was a source of contention between the Samaritans and the people of Jerusalem for a long time, well into the Hellenistic period. The woman says to him, Master, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain, yet do you say that in Jerusalem is the place where it is necessary to worship? And that reflects the struggle between the Samaritans and the people in Jerusalem and the temple on Mount Gerizim after the people of, of Samaria were overcome and subjected to the Maccabees, which did happen. And the temple at Mount Gerizim fell into disuse. And the people at the temple in Jerusalem insisted that Yahweh could only be worshipped there. That was a period long after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So she's asking him that question. Yet do you say that in Jerusalem is the place where it is necessary to worship? Yahshua says to her, Believe me, woman, that the hour comes when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. He admits that she worships the Father. You worship that which you do not know. The Samaritans, I would say, ostensibly, had been estranged from Yahweh, as well as the rest of lost Israel, regardless of their clinging to the covenant, 
regardless of their desire to keep the traditions. They would fall into the category described in Isaiah chapter 56, and I'll read that, a digression from a digression. I will read that from verse 4. For thus saith Yahweh, under the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, they were sons and daughters, but they were going because they kept his covenant voluntarily after they were put out of ancient Israel. They would earn a name for themselves better than of sons and daughters. Also, the sons of the stranger, the estranged Israelite, because Yahweh in this chapter is said to gather the outcasts of Israel. He's talking about the outcasts of Israel. Also, the sons of the stranger that join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it. Only the sons of those estranged from the children of Israel would keep the Sabbath from polluting it. And takes hold of my covenant. Even to them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house, my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all the people. The eunuchs and the dry trees of Isaiah 56 are Israelites who had been estranged from Yahweh their God. Christ goes on to tell the woman, We worship that which we know. Because salvation is from among the Judeans, and salvation indeed proceeds from that remnant of Israel which was not estranged from God, which is found in Judea. But the hour comes, and it is now, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father also seeks such as those worshiping him. Yahweh is a spirit, and for those worshiping him, it is necessary to worship in spirit and in truth. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah comes. She's an Israelite, this woman. I know that Messiah comes, who was called Christ. When he should come, he shall announce to us all things. Yahshua says to her, I am he who is speaking to you. And with this, his students had come, and they wondered that he had spoken with the woman, with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? Then the woman left her water and went off to the city and says to the man, come see a man who has told me all things, whatever I had done. Could it be that he is the Christ? These people were also anticipating a Messiah. So they came out of the city and came to him. And I'll skip ahead to verse 39 of John 4. And from that city, many of the Samaritans had believed in him through the word of the testimony of the woman, that he told me all things which I had done. Therefore, as the Samaritans came to him, having asked him to stay with them, then he stayed there for two days. And with many more, they believed through his word. And they had said to the woman that no longer do we believe because of your speech, for we ourselves have heard 
and we know that he is truly the savior of the society or the world. And after two days, he departed there for Galilee. Well, the people of Judea from the earliest times despised the Samaritans, as it is evident in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and here in John 4.9 also. It is also evident at the time of Christ that many of the people in Judea were not actually Israelites, but they were Edomites or other Canaanites, and that many of the Samaritans were truly Israelites, as we see here in John 4.12, 4.29, and 4.39-43. When certain of the Pharisees claimed to be the children of Abraham, Yahshua Christ immediately denied their claims where the record shows that these were indeed the children of Esau. And since Esau took Canaanite wives, his offspring are illegitimate. Yet when this certain Samaritan woman, who voiced an expectation of Israel's coming Messiah, claimed to be a daughter of Jacob, her claim was not denied. But rather it was substantiated by the subsequent quint by the subsequent events described in this chapter, John chapter 4. It is obvious that the first century Judeans, those who were Israelites, were making distinctions based upon religious and political boundaries, much as we do today, and ignoring the more important permanent bonds of kinship and race, much as many also do today. They had taken to revering the form over the substance. Verse 6 of Acts chapter 8. And the crowds being spoken to by Philip were attentive with one accord for which to hear him and, and to see the signs which he made. For many of those having unclean spirits crying out with a great voice came out and many who were paralyzed and lame had been healed. And there was much joy in that city. If this Philip is understood here to be the apostle, one of the twelve, then he must have been with Christ when he spent two days among the Samaritans. There's another Philip mentioned in Acts chapter 6, whom Luke mentions again in Acts chapter 23, where he explains that he is one of the seven, later known as Philip the Evangelist. If this here Philip is the apostle, which is the way I lean, but I can't prove it, being with the twelve from the beginning, then he must have learned from the events which he witnessed as they are recorded in John chapter 4, and accepted the Samaritans as fellow Israelites, in spite of the prejudices of the Judeans which they were raised with. Verse 9. Then a certain man named Simon, who before time in that city was practicing magic and astonishing the people of Samaria, saying of himself to be somebody great, to whom they were all attentive, from the least unto the greatest, saying, This is the great power of God being called. And they were attentive to him because of the considerable time which he astonished them by magic arts. The majority text, and therefore the King James Version, wants the words rendered being called at the end of verse 10. But that word appears in all of the ancient Greek manuscripts. The Greek word ethnos 
is in a singular people here rather than nation. One of several times it bears this sense in the New Testament. The King James Version recognizes this sense of the word here and in Romans 10.19. I'm surprised the King James Version did not translate the word Gentiles here, the Gentiles of Samaria, as it usually translates that word ethnos, Gentiles everywhere else. Here they're called the people of Samaria. Perhaps the King James translators, perhaps they understood what I would argue about this passage, that these passage, this passage had to be describing Samaritans who were of the circumcision, who continued in the circumcision. And the reasons for that we will discuss in Peter's assertion that he was the first, he was the first to convert people of the nations, people who were not circumcised, in reference to his conversion of the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. That there were Judeans spreading superstitions. And that many of the Greeks were also caught up in superstitions is evident in Acts chapter 19. I'll read from verse 13 of that chapter. Then a certain, then certain of the vagabond Jew or Judean exorcists also arranged to call, I'm sorry, also attempted to call the name of Prince Joshua upon those having wicked spirits, saying, I adjure you by Joshua, whom Paul proclaims. And there were seven sons of a certain Judean high priest, Skua, or Skua, or Skiva, doing this. But the wicked spirit answered, it said to them, Now I know Joshua, and I am acquainted with Paul, but who are you? Then the man in whom was the wicked spirit springing upon them, overpowering, both prevailing against them, and so naked, and having been wounded to flee from that house. And this became known to all those dwelling in Ephesus, both Judeans and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Prince Joshua was magnified. And many of those believing came confessing and reporting their practices, and many of those practicing curiosities, gathering their books, burned them before all. And they totaled their value and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of magic books, right? That's a lot of Jew magic books from Barnes and Nobles. Thusly, according to the power of the prince, the word grew and prevailed. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 8. But when they believed in the good message being announced by Philip concerning the kingdom of Yahweh in the name of Joshua Christ, meaning the Samaritans who had formerly been following Simon the magician, they were immersed or baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself also believed, and being immersed, was adhering to Philip, astonished seeing both the signs and great works of power being produced. Clifton wrote about Simon Magus in this event here and properly asserted that Simon Magus was most likely a Jew for Jesus. They had him in those days, too. That's Clifton's words also. Flavius Joseph. Flavius Joseph is talking 
about a certain woman named Drusilla seems to be discussing this very same Simon the Magician, where the time frame is about 25 years later than these events of Acts chapter 8. In Antiquities, Book 20, line 142, Book 20, Chapter 7, and I will quote, While Felix was procurator of Judea, he saw this Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she indeed exceeded all other women in beauty. And he sent to her a person whose name was Simon, one of his friends. A Judean he was, and by birth a Cypriot and one who pretended to be a magician and endeavored to persuade her to forsake her present husband and marry him and promised that if she would not refuse him, he would make her a happy woman. Now, whether this is our Simon the Magician from Acts 8 or not cannot be proven. It certainly sounds like him. However, as early as the epistles of Ignatius which are esteemed to be from the end of the first century, Ignatius having been a student of John the Apostle late in his life, and in the writings of early Christian bishops, such as Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician, is credited with having gained many disciples and beginning many heresies. In Irenaeus's Elucidations, one of his major works, he is said to have been the originator of many of the later Gnostic heresies. By some, Simon Magus is even credited with being the founder of what later became known as Gnosticism. In some later Christian writers, he is credited with having preached his heresies in Rome as well as in Palestine. Simon is said to have taken the name of Christ for himself, and he even claimed for himself to be God. Claims that the teachings of Simon Magus were later confused, perhaps purposely, for the teachings of the apostle Simon Peter also seem to have merit. Acts 8, verse 14. And the ambassadors in Jerusalem, hearing that Samaria received the word of Yahweh, sent Peter and John to them, who going down prayed concerning them that they would receive the Holy Spirit, for, it, for not yet had it fallen upon any of them, but they had only been immersed or baptized in the name of Prince Joshua. Now, from this it may be argued that this is Philip the Evangelist and not the original apostle for the reason that the Samaritans had not received the Holy Spirit through him. And neither did the Ethiopian eunuch after Philip baptized him. It's at least, it's not mentioned. As the account is related later in this chapter of Acts. But Philip's being accredited with these other miracles mentioned in verse 13 Certainly, it is apparent that this is indeed Philip the Apostle and not Philip the Evangelist, who was much more recently converted and only just appointed with the maintenance of widows in Acts chapter 6, as it is described there. But in either case, the Apostles Peter and John, they were certainly with Christ in Samaria, as we have seen it described in John chapter 4 
And therefore, they indeed understood that many of the Samaritans were actually Israelites. Peter certainly did not interpret Philip's having preached to these Samaritans as, he, as if he had preached to the uncircumcised people of other nations. As Peter is here with Philip in Samaria, and yet, later on in Acts chapter 15, Peter insists, and I quote from verse 7, that from the first days, Yahweh is chosen among you through my mouth for the nations to hear the account of the good message and to believe. Well, these Samaritans got it first from Philip, so they could not have been among the uncircumcised. They must have been Israelites practicing the circumcision. Peter here in Acts chapter 15, verse 7, where he says that the nations first through his mouth were converted and believed the gospel. Here he is referring to his vision of the sheet and his conversion of certain Romans, which is described in Acts chapter 10. Therefore, these Samaritans here are indeed Israelites who kept the covenants after the manner described in Isaiah chapter 56. Likewise, also in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, who must have been a Judean by nationality and an Israelite by race. And we will see that also this evening. Verse 17. Then they laid hands, they laid the hands upon them, and they received the Holy Spirit, meaning the Samaritan believers. And Simon, seeing that through the laying on of hands of the ambassadors, the Spirit is given, offered them money, saying, Give also to me this authority, in order that upon whom I should place the hands, he would receive the Holy Spirit. The 3rd century papyrus P45 and the codices Alexandrina, Ephraim, Siri, Beze, and the majority text have the Holy Spirit is given on the hands, through the laying on of the hands of the ambassadors, the Holy Spirit is given. The text here follows the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Whatever we, whatever we want to think about the receiving of the Holy Spirit at the laying on of the hands of the apostles, men certainly must have been able to visually perceive it at this time, and it must have been a powerful force enabling the spread of the gospel. The passing of the gifts of Yahweh to another through the laying on of hands is first seen in Scripture in Deuteronomy 34.9. Of Moses and his successor, Joshua, described after the death of Moses, and I quote, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. And the children of Israel hearkened unto him, as did, and did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Acts chapter 8, verse 20. And Peter said to him, Your silver with you would be for destruction, because you have believed that the gift of Yahweh is to be acquired with money. There is no part nor portion for you in this word, 
for your heart is not forthright before Yahweh. Therefore repent from this evil of yours and entreat of the prince. If then the intention of your heart shall be remitted for you, or forgiven, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of unrighteousness. The Greek word tikria is bitterness here. The word kole is gall or bile. Metaphorically, bitter anger or wrath. To the Hebrews, bitterness also implied rebellion, which is the, the, the words at Strong's number 4751 and 4754, mara, carry both meanings, bitterness and rebellion. Brenton realized this, translating his Septuagint edition, where at Psalm 104, verse 28, he rendered the Greek word parapikrahino, literally to embitter, he rendered that as to rebel against. These same words, pikria and kole, are again rendered as bitter and gall. In Brenton's Septuagint, at Deuteronomy 32.32. If we think that we can purchase our way into the favor of Yahweh God, or purchase the gifts granted by his favor, then we will never find ourselves in his favor. The phrase, gall of bitterness, seems to be referencing the same quality which we see described in the Song of Moses, of the enemies of Israel and of Yahweh God in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I will read from verse 31. Moses talking about the Canaanite peoples. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. In other words, the enemy understood that their God was not Yahweh and could not be. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their rock was not Yahweh because they were genetically like Sodom and Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. It's not a mistake to compare them to dragons and asps, serpents. Therefore, it is quite possible that this Simon is one of these vagabond Jews, as the King James Version has it in Acts 19.13, which Paul described as exorcists, as the word is also rendered in that version. A bad fig Judahite, or a bastard, descendant of Cain, who is destined to be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. This would explain the reason, as Clifton Anaheiser had once pointed out, why when he was told to repent and to pray, Simon Magus just couldn't do it. And instead... Simon Magus told Peter to pray for him, not that he would repent, 
but that he would not be punished. In any case, as it is described in so many of the earliest Christian writers, Simon Magus, not being able to purchase the powers of the new Christian creed for himself, he instead became one of its earliest perverts. If indeed he was the founder of Gnosticism. Acts 8.24 And replying, Simon said, You entreat on my behalf to the prince, or to the Lord, that not anything of what you spoke would come upon me. Simon would not repent. And he would not, or perhaps he could not pray for himself. Notice that he only demanded that Peter pray for him that he not suffer the punishment which Peter had already pronounced would come upon him. Therefore, Simon's rather pretentious response is to put himself above all other men, as if he were above suffering any punishment for his wicked deeds. Now, that assessment of Simon's behavior, which is fairly plain here in the book of Acts, it lends a lot of credibility to the writings of the early church, the early Christian bishops concerning the Simon Magus, that he was the founder of these terrible heresies. And Gnosticism is a very connivingly contrived and terrible heresy. It's actually a bunch of them. Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas Iscariot, um, the idea that Christ had children with Mary Magdalene and they lived happily ever after in France, clowns like Dan Brown become millionaires off this garbage. Well, that's the work of the Gnostics. And presumably, they derived their heresies from Simon Magus according to the early Christian writers. Verse 25. So then, they, affirming with testimony and speaking the word of the prince while returning to Jerusalem, then announced the good message in many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles must have expected to reach many Old Testament covenant-keeping Israelites in these villages of the Samaritans. Many Isaiah 56, strangers and eunuchs, dry trees. Because Peter would not yet preach the word to the unclean, ostensibly meaning the uncircumcised who lived without the law. Peter would not preach the word to those people until he considered the vision of the sheep, which appeared to him three times. Peter had to be told everything three times, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 10. So we can't... We make Peter a hypocrite if we imagine that these Samaritans were among the uncircumcised. Verse 26... And the messenger of the prince spoke to Philip, saying, You must rise up and go about noon by the road which goes down from Jerusalem into Gaza, which is desert. 
and arising he went, those four words beginning to the belonging to the beginning of verse 27 in the Christogenia New Testament. The phrase, which is desert, seems to be descriptive of the road and not of Gaza itself. Philip was called to go to Gaza, and he met an Ethiopian eunuch on the way. Philip was not called to go to Ethiopia itself, which lies far beyond Gaza. The word for Gaza, which is merely a transliteration, is actually a Persian word, which in early times, 4th century BC, the writings of Theophrastus are the first known writings which contain it, had made its way into the Greek language. And it means treasure. It had that meaning in Persian and in Greek. The eunuch was not working in Ethiopia. And the scripture shall show that the eunuch was not an Ethiopian by race. He was only in the employ of the Ethiopian government in Gaza, where the treasure of the Ethiopians was kept, the word Gaza meaning treasure. The Ethiopian eunuch being over all of the treasure of the queen of Ethiopia. It may have been, it may have been, that the Ethiopians maintained a warehouse complex for trade in Gaza, that's ostensive, that's evident here, which at this time was only the name of a town on the coast. Gaza was not the name of the whole region of today known as the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip. Gaza was only the name of a single town near the coast in southern Palestine. And Gaza was used for such business, Gaza being used for such business, also may explain how it acquired its name, that it was a treasury. It was a treasury town. The eunuch was not even necessarily a eunuch, since although in the earliest times, in early Persia, in early Assyria, in early Egypt, slaves were often made eunuchs, and employed in the, court, in the courts of kings. They were made eunuchs to protect the females of the king's household. That's why they were made eunuchs. And in the earliest times, they were literally made eunuchs. The word was still used in later ages to describe people who were employed in official capacities although the actual practice of using slaves for such offices and removing their testicles had been discontinued, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part. The word Ethiopia is from a Greek word, which means shining-faced or sunburned face, and it is hardly descriptive of Negroes but rather of whites who would acquire such an appearance by inhabiting such a warm climate. It has been established earlier in this series of discussions on the book of Acts that there were two places called Ethiopia by the Greeks, one in Mesopotamia and one below Egypt. 
corresponding to two places called Cush by the Hebrews. Of course, Cush was a white son of Noah and the ancestor of Nimrod, the founder of the first Adamic white empire in Mesopotamia. The original Ethiopians could not have been Negroes and were most certainly Hamitic settlers from Mesopotamia who inhabited the region around the Horn of Africa, where Ethiopia is. It is explained in the paper of Christogenia, the race of Genesis 10, that in the first 11 chapters of his third book, of his library of history, Diodorus Siculus, a Greek historian of the first century B.C., draws much from earlier historians, as he always did for whomever he wrote about, to describe the various peoples of Ethiopia in Africa, as opposed to the Ethiopia of the East. And it is evident that those tribes contrast with one another quite starkly. The first Ethiopians he discusses are endowed with what we may consider a well-developed form of Western civilization. For Diodorus Siculus states, that they say that they were the first to be taught to honor the gods and to hold sacrifices and processions and festivals. If they were the first empirical gover government over Adamic men, they might have that impression, right? Which Nimrod was definitely a Cushite. They quote Homer in reference to themselves. They recount the unsuccessful invasions into their country by Cambyses and Semiramis. And they claim that the Egyptians were originally Ethiopian colonists led by Osiris. The two types of their writing, like Egypt, popular or demotic and sacred or hieroglyphic, are described. And it is said that the sacred writing is common among these Ethiopians. Their priests were much like the Egyptians. They believed that their kings gained sovereignty by divine providence, the divine right of kings, which we've seen in Europe for thousands of years. Their laws and punishments were from custom, and they practiced the same flight of refuge which the Greeks did, which was similar to the Hebrew Levitical cities of refuge. An Ethiopian king under Ptolemy, under Ptolemy, subject to Ptolemy, was educated in Greece and studied philosophy. And aside from a few odd customs, there is no reason to believe that these Ethiopians, whose physical characteristics were not mentioned by Diodorus Siculus, there's no reason to believe that they were anything but civilized and not much different than the rest of Western society. And the next paragraph from my paper, The Race of Genesis 10. In stark contrast to those cultured Ethiopians, which Diodorus Siculus first discussed, beginning at, at chapter 8, paragraph 1 of his first book, he says, and I quote, But there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians. And here it's apparent that, like Phoenicia and other labels, Ethiopia has become merely a geographical designation rather than a national one. 
some of them dwelling in the land, lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands and the rivers, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia, which is in the Greek world between the Nile and the Red Sea, and others residing in the interior of Libya, which in the Greek world is the rest of Africa, and here it would be Sudan. The majority of them, and I'm quoting from Theodore Siculus, the majority of them, especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. Here it is evident that Theodore Siculus is describing the Nubians and the other wandering black tribes of the region. But he never said that the civilized Ethiopians were black. He didn't even have to describe them. He didn't have to describe them ostensibly because they looked just like Greeks or other people of the Greek Greco-Roman world. They didn't look different. Didor Siculus continues, as for their spirit, meaning these black people with flat noses and woolly hair, they are entirely savage. No kidding. And display the nature of wild beasts and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. Of course, the civilized Ethiopians, the ones that quoted Homer, the ones that studied philosophy in Greece, the ones that had laws and flights of refuge and the divine right of kings. Didoris didn't say anything like that about them. Aside from the fact that it was clearly a non-black and Western society, society in Ethiopia at this time, it is also fully apparent in history and archaeology that there was at one time a large settlement of Judahites in the area of Ethiopia. The island, Elephantine, near the fourth cataract of the Nile, was long considered to be the southern extremity of Egypt. There was an outpost there, manned by Judahite mercenaries and their families who were hired to guard the border in Persian times. Documents called the Elephantine Papyri were found over a hundred years ago, which are records of letters between these people and authorities, both in Persia and Judea, which also inform us that a model of the temple in Jerusalem was once built in this place. However, a connection between this settlement and this particular eunuch cannot merely be conjectured, and it is not required for us to understand this account in Acts. I gave this background on Ethiopia to show that Ethiopia was cultured and it was Western. It was evidently a white society in Ethiopia, even still at this time, or at least a mostly white society, and it was subject to Ptolemy, which means it may even have had a large Greek element. The history of Ethiopia at this time is very sketchy, 
Diodorus Siculus's descriptions cannot merely be ignored. We don't need to know about the history of Ethiopia to understand this story of the Ethiopian eunuch, because who he was an employee of really doesn't matter. The scripture proves that he's a Judean, and we will get to that. Without a doubt, it was the intention of Yahshua Christ by which Philip encountered the so-called Ethiopian eunuch, and we see that in verse 29. And we can only offer conjecture as to why this event was purposefully engineered by the will of God, and then included here in the book of Acts. It is the purpose of Yahweh God to try the hearts of men, and this account of the Ethiopian eunuch has certainly tried the hearts of many, who would think God to be a hypocrite, and who failed to consider this entire account in its original and historical context. I would like to quote from Job, chapter 7, verse 17. What is man, that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldst set thine heart upon him, and that thou shouldest visit him every morning, and try him every moment? To continue with Acts chapter 8, verse 27. And behold, an Ethiopian eunuch, an officer of Queen Candace, or Kandake, of the Ethiopians, who was over all of her treasure, who had come to worship in Jerusalem, and he was returning and sitting upon his chariot, and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Strabo, in his geography, at book 17, chapter 1, paragraph 54, discusses a revolt against the Romans led by a queen, Candace, or Candace, of Ethiopia in the days of Augustus Caesar. About 25 or perhaps as many as 30 years before this time, while she may have been the very same queen, Candace, or Candace, is from certain of the ancient inscriptions found in Ethiopia revealed to be a title and not a proper name. It was their title for their queen. Strabo also described Ethiopians who fled from the sun because of sunburn, book 16. Chapter 4, paragraph 8. And that too is hardly descriptive of blacks. The word for the place Philip was told to go, Gaza, and the word for treasure here in verse 27 are the same exact word, that word borrowed from Persian, meaning treasure. And they only appear here in the New Testament. This Ethiopian eunuch surely must have been a Judean man living in Gaza and in the employ of the Ethiopians, since he was found returning from Jerusalem where he worshipped and reading from the book of Isaiah when Philip met him. At this time, only Judeans were admitted into the temple in Jerusalem to worship. You had to be circumcised. And there were signs posted around the temple threatening death to foreigners who entered. One of the charges leveled against Paul by the Judean 
by the Judeans in Acts chapter 24 was that he intended to profane the temple by admitting into it an uncircumcised man. The eunuch sitting in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah was on his way back to Gaza from the temple where all men of Israel were told three times a year to appear at the feasts. And he must have been a Judean. In Acts chapter 10, Peter received a vision which was a representation telling him to bring the message of the gospel to uncircumcised men. Immediately thereafter, the Roman servants of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, showed up at the house where Peter was staying. They were asking him to return to their home, to the home of Cornelius, with them, so that they could hear the gospel. Without the vision, Peter would not have entertained these uncircumcised men. Later in Acts 15.7, Peter took the credit for being the first to preach to the uncircumcised where he says, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us that the nations by my mouth should hear the word of gospel and believe. And he was referring to none other than the conversion of the household of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Since the conversion of Cornelius came after the conversion of the eunuch, then the eunuch must have been a Judean, as all of the circumstances mentioned in the account of Philip's meeting with him also indicate. Either that or Peter's a liar. I think Peter's telling the truth. Acts 8.29 Then the Spirit said to Philip, Draw near, and you must join to this chariot. And running up, Philip heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you truly understand the things which you read? The 4th century papyrus P50 has and coming near rather than and running up. The Greek words employed in these verses, which include that phrase and running up, inform us that Philip himself was also in a chariot. It's built into the Greek language. We can't really see it in, in, in English that easily. The Greek words used in, inform us that Philip was in a chariot, although it is not explicitly stated. It's a long trip from Jerusalem to Gaza. Also, it was quite natural for Philip to have heard the man reading since it was customary in those days for people to read aloud. Verse 31. And he said, meaning the Ethiopian eunuch, who evidently spoke Greek or, or, or whatever language Philip, it could be argued by some that perhaps he was speaking Aramaic. It's absolutely obvious that all the apostles spoke Greek with some degree of fluency. And he said, Indeed, how would I be able to if there is no one who could, who could guide me? And he invited Philip, coming to sit with him, coming up to sit with him, 
And the section of the scripture which he read was this. And the eunuch quotes. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent. Or I should say Luke is quoting the eunuch. So he opened not his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall describe his birth? For his life is taken from the earth. This citation, read in verses 32 and 33 here, are from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. A messianic prophecy. By this, there is also further confirmation as to whom is truly responsible for the crucifixion. Christ spoke to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Luke 23.3, John 18.28. But Christ would not say a word in reply to the Edomite Jew Herod, Luke 23.9, or to the high priests, Matthew 26.62 and 63, Mark 14.16-61. The Greek word genea is translated birth here in the Christogenian New Testament in verse 33. It is race, stock, family, tribe, nation, a race, a generation, offspring, or of time or place in reference to birth. It's a birthplace, an age, a time of life, a time of birth, by birth, depending on the example followed. Therefore, it is birth here. Certainly, the reading, who shall describe his race, is also quite appropriate. And perhaps, today, it is even more fitting, since it forebodes the heretics of modern times who so wrongly and blasphemously purport that Christ was something other than a white man. Acts 8, verse 34. And responding, the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, about whom does the prophet speak this? About himself or about some other? Then Philip, opening his mouth and beginning from this scripture, announced to him the good message about Yahshua. And as they were going down the road, they came upon some water. And the eunuch said, Behold, water! What prevents me from being immersed or baptized? It's apparent that Philip must have explained the baptism ritual to the eunuch, as well as many other things in his explanation of the gospel. After verse 36, the 6th century Codex Laudianus inserts the words, And Philippus said to him, if you believe with your whole heart, you shall be saved. Then replying, he said, I believe the Son of Yahweh to be Yahshua Christ, the Son of Yahweh. Okay, it's a little redundant. That's the way the 6th century Codex Laudianus reads it. Other late manuscripts, which are also not considered in the Christogenian New Testament because of their relatively recent age, follow the Codex Laudianus. And with some variation, that text is found in verse 37 in the King James Version. We must reject it entirely as a late interpolation of Scripture.
verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down to the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up from the water, the spirit of the prince seized Philip, and the eunuch did not see him any longer. So he went on his journey rejoicing. And Philip was found in Azotus. And passing through there, he announced the good message in all the cities until his coming into Caesarea. While it is clear that Philip, as well as the other apostles, were continuing to employ the traditional baptism ritual as it was practiced by John, we shall discuss its later application and its relevance today at length when we encounter Peter's explanation of what happened at the home of Cornelius, which is recorded in Acts chapter 11. Here it says that the spirit of the prince seized Philip, the spirit of the Lord, if you would like to translate it that way. It still refers to the spirit of Yahshua Christ. It is, of course, the Holy Spirit. And we see in John chapter 14, and I will read from verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither does it know him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, or fatherless in the Greek. I will come to you. That was basically the King James reading. Christ will send them the Spirit of truth and says, I will come to you. The Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. Yahshua Christ and the Holy Spirit are one. I will come to you. John fourteen eighteen. Therefore, Yahshua Christ and Yahweh God are one. Three manifestations of the same being, of the same invisible God. There were many other manifestations. The rock in the desert, the burning in the bush, the pillar, the pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire. There were many other manifestations of God over history. So it can't be a trinity. They are all one. This description of the movement of Philip from Gaza to Azotus, which was over 20 miles north along the coast is indeed quite enigmatic and seems to be indicating that it was by a supernatural event. I won't conjecture any more than that. Next week, Acts chapter 9 and the conversion of Saul. Tomorrow, Sword Brethren and Against the Paul Bashers, part 23, finishing with the slanders of Clayton Douglas. Thank you for listening. And good night. There might be a delay in posting this program to Christogenia.org because of the technical difficulty of having to use my own recording and the extra juggling I have to do with that. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening.